I'd invite you to pray with me. Gracious and holy God, as we prepare to come uh, before your word this day, Lord, help us just be present in this time and place. Help us to be open uh, to that which you have to speak to us this day. Um, Allow us to receive the gift of your word um, this morning. Um, Allow it uh, to soak in and shape us as we continue um, and desire uh, to leave the space um, to live um, our lives faithfully um, as we seek to follow after your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in your name we ask these things. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes uh, from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. Let us listen for God's word for us this day. So what are we going to say? Should we continue sinning so grace will multiply? Absolutely not. All of us died to sin. How can we still live in it? Or don't you know that all who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried together with him through baptism into his death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too can walk in newness of life. If we were united together in a death like his, we will also be united together in a resurrection like his. This is what we know. The person that we used to be was crucified with him in order to get rid of the corpse that had been controlled by sin. That way we wouldn't be slaves to sin anymore because a person who has died has been freed from sin's power. But if we died with Christ, we have faith that we will also live with him. We know that Christ has been raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has power over him. He died to sin once and for all with his death, but he lives for God with his life. In the same way, you also should consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive for God in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So last week we were remembering what we are, and this week we're being invited to remember what we have. So what is the what this time? I already gave you a hint in the children's sermon. It's freedom, um, but it's important uh, to think about what we mean when we talk about freedom um, in our own faith. To understand what we mean by Christian freedom and what it looks like as we live out our lives, we've got a little work to do together today. Today we're going to tackle some really critical, foundational, theological principles, which I know sounds super exciting. But if you hang in there with me for just a minute, it just might be. This is the stuff I get excited about, which is a very pastory thing for me to do. But here is why. This is really where the rubber meets the road when it comes to our faith and its impact on our life. Not just the way we live, but the quality of that life. So here we go. In order to talk about Christian freedom, we have to first talk about sin, for it is that from which we are being freed. 
This last week, we posted about our summer day camp on social media, and we used some dollars uh, to boost that post so that it would go out beyond our usual audience, hoping to get the word out to other families with kiddos in our area. But as a result, we got hit by some internet trolls, some people who clearly have a bone to pick with religion, who had some pretty provocative responses to our posts. We deleted them as they came through, but as we did that, I named out loud that I would really like to have a cup of coffee with these people, if that were possible in the real world. I knew there was no way I was going to get into a productive conversation online with someone who is clearly out to pick a fight, but when you read the small print of what they were saying, it was clear that they were responding to some pretty terrible theology that is out in the world. I would love to have a face-to-face conversation around what we actually believe about God and how that might shift the way they feel. One of these posts was basically making the argument that sharing our faith with children was tantamount to child abuse. Provocative, I know, which was, of course, the point. One of the ways they got to that analysis was by saying that we teach children that normal behavior is sinful and that the sinful are hellbound, which leaves kids feeling ashamed about normal behavior and terrified that it will land them in hell. Here's the thing. That analysis is not wrong. There are churches that are teaching this similar kind of thread of theology, and too many people who have been hurt and scarred by such teaching in our world today, and I'm guessing that our internet trolls just might be some of them. I just disagree that the theology they are challenging is the only theology that is out there. So let's talk about what we think and understand about sin. To understand it fully, you have to take back a step or two back and name what we believe and know to be true about our God. Our God is a relational God. And what is at the heart of God's being is love. In God, we see relationship. God, the creator, the giver of life. God, the son, the redeemer of life. God, the spirit, the sustainer of life. God created the world and all of us in it out of love and a desire to extend God's relational being to us, to be in relationship with us. God wanted real relationship. So God gave us the ability to choose, to choose how we would live, So that we would have the power and the capacity to choose God, to choose relationship with God, to choose love. Which means God has also given us the capacity to choose something else. Something other than love. Something other than God. Other than love for God's good creation. Ourselves, our God, our neighbor, the earth. Which is of course how sin enters the scene. We sin when we act, think, speak in such a way that instead of loving ourselves, our God, our neighbor, the earth, we do the opposite. We harm ourselves, our God, our neighbor, the earth. I've said this to you probably a hundred times, and I will likely say it to you one hundred more because it is that important. Sin is named sin by God because it is destructive to our life, the life of others, the life of the world. 
Sin is named sin by God because God loves us, wants what's best for us, and will tell us when we have gone astray, not to make us feel terrible about ourselves, not to scare us into obedience, but simply to point us back to the path that leads to life. Because for God, it is always and forever about love and life. Because God loves us, God longs for life for us. So when we find ourselves stuck in death-dealing patterns or places out of love, God will come again and again and point us back toward life. Jesus died so that we would know the depths of that love God has for us, where God was willing to go, what God was willing to suffer for us. Jesus died so that we would not only know the depths of God's love for us, but also its power. That somehow in a world where power and might, money and station seem to rule the world, a selfless act of sacrificial love was able to defeat all its enemies, including death itself. So when we teach children about sin, it's not normal behavior that we call sin. It's hurtful behavior, harmful choices. We don't use the threat of hell to get kids to behave, quite the opposite. We teach them they are loved by a God who wants what's best for them and will show up to them again and again to show them the way. We teach them that they are loved by a God who will meet them where they are, even if they have made a gigantic mistake, and point them back toward life. Because God's love is not conditional upon our behavior. Freedom, Christian freedom, is walking that path, that path of life. To be free is not to get to do whatever we want, because you and I will choose sin too many times. And when we choose sin, we can become enslaved to it. And y'all, that is not freedom. Christian freedom means that we are free from sin so that we might live the life we were meant to live so that we might love the way we were meant to love, so that we might become who we were meant to be. Can you imagine how different our lives, our communities, our nation, our world would look if we lived by this definition of freedom? We are given this freedom in our baptism. As Paul says, this is what we know. The person that we used to be was crucified with him in order to get rid of the corpse that had been controlled by sin. That way we wouldn't be slaves to sin anymore. Because a person who has died has been freed from sin's power. Yet claiming and living into that freedom is a lifelong endeavor. It's clear by Paul's words that the Christians in Rome are struggling to do this. And y'all, we struggle too. So I've got a real-world example of this from the life of yours truly. But as you listen to it, I'd invite you not to get too fixated on the example itself, but instead have in mind what is keeping you from freedom right now. The example I'm choosing to share with God and country this morning is fairly innocuous. But the patterns I see in it are ones I recognize in other habits, actions, and thoughts in me that are not what God would choose for me. So I saw a post this week that claimed that sugar is eight times more addictive than cocaine. Well, I've never experimented with the latter, 
this rang true to me because sugar and I have a pretty unhealthy relationship. Is consuming sugar inherently sinful? No, absolutely not. God created fruit and honey, and there is a reason sugar delights our taste buds. However, if you would have seen the lengths I went to find the scone I wanted for breakfast yesterday morning, you might recognize with me that like so many things that are not inherently sinful in and of themselves, out of balance, they can get there pretty quickly. I need to name here that we are set up for the sugar thing to be a significant issue. There's added sugars in so much of our foods on purpose so that we keep buying them and eating them. Like so many things that aren't the best for us, this is hard because things are kind of set to work against us. Temptation is everywhere. But here's the thing. I know that consuming a bunch of added sugar outside of those initial few moments doesn't make me feel good. It makes me sluggish, messes with my body's insulin response, which keeps me feeling hungry when I'm not, coming back to more when I shouldn't. I know that eating too much added sugar is tied to multiple long-term health conditions that can really wreak havoc on your body, that if it's consumed more often than just the occasional treat, that it's just not that good for you. I've also been able to kick the habit long enough to know how much better I feel, how much more energy I have, how much clearer my mind is, and how quickly my taste buds can adapt and change. What typically tastes delicious will taste sickeningly sweet if I cut it out of my diet for just a few weeks. At the same time, after a few weeks without added sugar, those healthier natural sugars suddenly taste so much more delightful and start to become what I crave instead. If I'm being honest about this particular habit of mine, getting to eat whatever I want doesn't feel like freedom for very long at all. This is the difference between freedom as we often think of it and Christian freedom. A good friend of mine has this mantra that is one he lives by. Discipline equals freedom. Discipline and disciple come from the same root. When we seek to follow after Christ, to be Christ's disciples, to live out our baptism, we seek to drown out, put to death that which is death-dealing in our lives. That which harms us or others. That which keeps us um, so that we can rise up uh, to follow Christ into new life. At the beginning of this text, Paul asks this rhetorical question of his readers. Should we continue sinning so grace will multiply? Or in other words, if we are assured of God's grace, then isn't it okay to just keep on sinning? then grace will just multiply in our lives, right? Paul's response to that question is an emphatic, absolutely not. Because here's the thing, y'all. Sin is harmful. It hurts us. It has consequences. So if we keep sinning, the consequences of those sins keep piling up. Our God is a forgiving God, but our God is also a just God. There are natural consequences to our sin. We can be forgiven for those sins, but that does not keep us from suffering the consequences of them, from justice being served when our sin has caused harm in the world. Where grace piles up, where it multiplies in our lives, is when we accept the gift we are given at our baptism. When we choose the path of discipline, discipling, instead of the path of doing whatever we want. 
Grace multiplies in our lives when we choose the path God longs for us, when we choose to love ourselves and others and watch the consequences of those choices multiply around us. So remember your baptism. Remember that God loves you. Remember that God longs for what is best for you. Remember that God will help you to recognize the consequences of the sin in your life, not to scare you into obedience, but instead to love you, to love you into freedom and life. Amen.